every human being is going to wrestle with some form of sexual temptation. The issue isn't primarily what kind of temptation do they experience, but are they someone who loves Jesus more than their sin? Welcome to another episode of Sex Plus Christian Parents Podcast. I am Jason. And I'm Thomas. And on today's episode, we get the opportunity to chat with Sam Albury. And Sam is going to continue a conversation we've had over a couple of episodes now, one with Greg and one with Preston Sprinkle, where we're talking about the LGBTQ community. Sam is going to dive into his personal experience with same-sex attraction, as well as talk about the faithfulness of being single. We are excited for this discussion. Today. So I'm from the UK. I've been in Christian ministry for about 15 to 20 years. Um, for much of that, working in, in different local churches as a church pastor and also done a lot of work in apologetics over the last few years. And I'm in the process of, of moving to Nashville, Tennessee to join the staff of a church there. To get us going, Sam's going to share a little bit of his story. Yeah, so I, I began to realize as a as a teenager that I was attracted to guys and not attracted to girls. Um, and it took me a long time to, to figure that out. Um, I'm a slow person at the best of times, but as well as that, this was the early nineties. These issues weren't on the table in the way that they are now. And so the categories that we now have of different types of sexual identity that we can so easily reach for in our culture weren't really available then. Um, so it took me a long time to realize that the feelings I had were feelings of, of sexual and romantic attraction towards other guys that I wasn't experiencing towards girls. So it took me a few years to kind of to figure that out. Um, then just as I was figuring it out, I, I became a Christian um, unrelated to that whole process. But I came to faith, was invited to a church's youth ministry realized immediately that what I'd grown up thinking Christianity was, was very different to what I was hearing as the message of Jesus himself and realized Christianity wasn't about God congratulating good people, but God finding lost people. And had come to a realization that I was one of those lost people. I realized that if, if God was there, then I should probably know him. And I don't. And I figured that was probably on me rather than on him. <laughs> so began to realize, actually, I, I must be lost then. Uh, so I came to faith, then obviously had to sort of figure out what discipleship looks like for someone who experiences same-sex attraction. Quickly realized it wasn't going to be appropriate for me to act on those particular feelings and impulses. Um, not if I wanted to stay kind of following Jesus with integrity. So committed myself to following what Jesus teaches on these things and sort of assumed early on that these feelings would all go away if I was a Christian and began to realize by the time of my mid-twenties that that wasn't the case and that therefore I needed to sort of think through how to, how to deal with this longer term um, and began to realize how this could be an occasion for the goodness of God in my life and then began to realize how this could be an occasion for the good of God through my life to other people. I'd never had any intention at all of speaking and sharing publicly on this. Um, so the fact that I'm doing so now is 
was not something I would have expected or wanted um, a few years ago. But began to, to realize that this was such a, a big issue culturally that we needed to have some people who could speak to it from the inside of it. And just found a, a growing burden to share with people that God's God's word to people like me on this issue is, is a good word, not a bad word. And that Jesus is good, he is sufficient, and it's not a bad deal following him, even if you have same-sex attraction. I'm so moved by the way Sam shares his story, uh, because one of the things that we often find, especially this month, where culturally we see here in America our celebration of the LGBTQ community, Pride Month. I I think that so often what we hear is that God's word is not good for those that are same-sex attracted, like Sam is sharing. And I love the way that Sam said, no, I I was lost. And, And he was found. He was found in the relationship available to him through God's son, Jesus Christ. And I I think that one of the things that we can often think, and he even says it, is that he expected God to take away his same-sex sexual desire. And that's not what happened. And and I think that that's really important. As parents, what we're going to have to understand is that these conversations, the reason we're doing these episodes is because these conversations are more important than ever. But we've also got to understand that Sometimes our desires that we have, regardless if it's same-sex attraction or if it's opposite sex or if it's uh, something uh, that draws us to pornography, whatever that desire is, if it's not within God's will, we have to recognize that God has a better plan for us. But that does not necessarily mean he will take away our desire. We have to live in obedience. And I, I think that that's really important for us to hear as Sam is sharing this story, God's plan is good. God's plan sometimes can also be extremely difficult. I mean, Thomas, you as a pastor are pastoring individuals that are often, right? They're trying to to sometimes justify or trying to continue in whatever sin might exist. They're they're looking for justification. And I, I, I'm assuming you've had these conversations where you've had to say, well, no, like this is not going to be the thing that brings you the greatest joy. Right. I, so how, how do you engage that as a pastor? Yeah, and I think you said it right, Jason. We need to recognize as believers, we're all called to surrender our own will, our own desires, our own preferences, whatever word you want to put there. We're, we're, we're called to surrender all of that to Christ. Right. That's what it means to make him Lord of your life is that you surrender to his will and you're, you're obedient to that. So for all of us, we all have something to which we lay down that doesn't fit in his will. And I try to help people remember that, that, hey, you might have something that you think brings you joy because it's brought you momentarily excitement. Um, but God's plan, his desire, his will, which is greater than ours, yeah. brings you the best joy because it's, it's what he's designed for all of us. And that's hard to wrestle with the more we have this conversation as well. Right. Because those sexual desires, which were created sexual beings, and we've said that before in this podcast, those are deep within us. And so it's really hard when we start doing that conversation. But it's what we need to do. 
Absolutely. And, and, and Sam actually speaks about this. He speaks about discovering God's truth at work in his own life and how that was good news. It brought him to faith and, and ultimately helped him keep the faith. The way I became a Christian has proved to be very significant for then remaining as a Christian ever since then. Um, the way I became a Christian was I'd heard the gospel message. Part of me knew it was true, but it needed to go from being true in a theoretical sense to true experientially. And I, I got to the point where I suddenly realized if this was true, then the magnitude of what I was believing meant that Jesus really was worthy of nothing less than my whole life. I couldn't just add him on as a nice kind of addition to the sidelines of my life. If, if he was true, I, he, I had to be all in. And the thing that made me feel compelled to following him was I realized that Jesus had died for me. And if that was the case, I knew I could trust him. I knew that I could trust him with every part of life. So I remember thinking it was the first week of August 1993. I remember one afternoon sitting outside. It was sunny, unusually, for an England summer. And I remember thinking, if Jesus has done all of that for me, then I can trust him. And I realized I wanted to follow him. And I didn't know what following him would look like. I didn't know what it would entail. I didn't know what, what would come from that. But I knew that whatever it involved would be okay because it's Jesus. So I didn't need to know what Jesus said about human sexuality to know that I could trust him. His death and resurrection for me had already shown me I could trust him. But what that meant was because it was very much faith in the goodness of Jesus from the very beginning, I didn't go through any kind of crisis or period of doubt when I then began to figure out what the Christian teaching was on sexual ethics. Um, it didn't mean it was easy or, you know, I didn't have to wrestle with it, but I, I never doubted the goodness of Jesus. So... In that sense, I've never doubted him when it comes to human sexuality, because from the very beginning, I knew that I could trust him and nothing's changed that. I want you to notice the same gospel message that convicts Sam, that resonates in his heart and the story he just told has been the same message I've shared as a pastor for years. And in fact, hearing Sam's story, it reminded me of the episode we did with Preston Sprinkle regarding LGBT and how kids are asking questions of faith. They are wrestling with how do they continue to submit to Jesus and live in light of the sexual questions they have. So we need to learn as parents how to engage their questions of faith with the word of God. Sam wrote a book, Is God Anti-Gay? And I would encourage you, that's one, a resource you want to have and read because he begins wrestling with this question in our podcast. Is God actually anti-gay it's not quite a yes no answer frustratingly um, we know that he's against certain forms of sexual behavior including same-sex sexual behavior but we also know that even right now this very hour he's offering life and peace and healing and hope to gay people through jesus christ so while god is offering us life in his son he's not ultimately against us but he can be against many of the things that we've done that 
mean we need that life to be offered to us in the first place. So God has a, a, a way of relating to us that we find very hard to relate to one another. We, we tend to think culturally, well, you know, the line is, unless you affirm me, you can't be my friend. Unless you agree with me, you can't love me. Um, the God we see revealed in Jesus Christ was always able to be friends with people without approving of everything they did. Think of the, the tax collectors that he, he ate with. He was also able to disagree with people without condemning them and rejecting them. And we've we've lost those kinds of categories today. So we assume that someone agrees with you or they hate you. Um, whereas God disagrees with us and is reaching out to us in love. Something Sam also does really well is look at the redefinition of marriage. Now, something we often do on the podcast is talk a lot about marriage, but we said this in the last episode with Preston Sprinkle, that the key question is, what is marriage? What is marriage for? These are questions that we need to be able to answer when we're having these conversations around LGBTQ. So listen as Sam dives into what he observes when it comes to the redefinition of marriage. At some point, and others will track when, this, when and how this happened better than I can, we turned sex and marriage from being covenantal and a form of self-giving to being about self-expression and a sense of mutual fulfillment. Um, when we made that shift, we actually changed the definition of marriage. Uh, so the real, the real change in the definition of marriage wasn't when we legalized gay marriage. It was when we turned marriage into a kind of flexible romantic contract, whereby as long as we're both feeling romantically fulfilled, we'll stick around. But the moment one of us doesn't feel that, they have every right to, to step away from this thing. And marriage became about publicly recognizing and celebrating romantic fulfillment. When that became the shift, it was inevitable that it would eventually be redefined to include gay couples, because if it's about recognizing romantic fulfillment, then why can't same-sex couples have their moment in the sun as well? And while we're at it, why does it have to be two people and not three people? So I'm sure we're going to see a, a, a call for you know, three-person marriages, throuples, all that kind of stuff as well, because it's all about having my romantic fulfillment celebrated by my community, because it's about my self-expression and your affirmation of that self-expression more than it's about anything else. I'm glad Sam goes here with marriage because we're seeing this take place in our culture right now. Marriage is about my pleasure and my happiness and it's fleeting, right? Whenever I don't feel like I'm getting what I thought I was going to get out of this, yeah. I can I can easily leave. Um, and so while it's important for the conversation around LBGTQ, the reality is this is an important one for the church because all marriages have to fall in line with what Scripture says. Absolutely. And I appreciate how he he brings up the point that it wasn't when we introduced uh, the legality of same-sex marriage. It, it was it was long before that uh, with how we've even eased restrictions in our churches and uh, other dynamics around marriage, but specifically around divorce. Uh, we, we see it being more easily accessible and allowed in the church, right? Like we—and— and, Listen, there are many 
uh, reasons. We have biblical reasons that lay out what happens right. and why we would divorce someone. But and we might have listeners that have been divorced, and and so we want to recognize right what can happen, the pain, the hurt, and the the horrible things that lead to that occurring. Absolutely. But he brings up something that's so very important that he mentions this dynamic of a flexible romantic contract. I mean, those are three important words to pay attention to. First, <laughs> that it's flexible, that I, that it that it can that it can be this thing that like, well, it might be good, might not, whatever. Yep. Like it's romantic. So it's based upon feeling. It's not based upon action and it's a contract not a covenant right and those are right? very different and those are very very different right contract is something you sign but you can always get out of a contract a covenant is something you stand before god and say i will right and 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 it's between you and god and that that is so very important sam also discusses uh whether or not same-sex attraction is a sin now we hit upon this in a few episodes i i, I want to continue to hit upon this because it's such a new thought for so many Christians, and especially as parents, I think that we've got to have a good understanding of this. And what I love about Sam is that he speaks with an added nuance that I think really brings a new dimension to this question. There's nuance here. Um, Jesus shows us in the Sermon on the Mount that lustful desire is sinful. So you can commit adultery in your heart just by looking at someone lustfully. So it's not simply a matter of, well, as long as I'm not doing anything physically, I'm fine. Because Jesus says, if you're doing something mentally, that's not fine. And he redefines adultery as not just what you do in the bedroom, but what you do in your heart. Uh, not just what you do with your, your genitals, what you do with your eyes. So from that point of view, if I am thinking about another man lustfully, I'm sinning. So if by same-sex attraction we're meaning the experience of a, a romantic sexual attraction towards another man, the very experience of that desire is sinful. But I, what I'd also want to say is that the Bible does make a distinction between temptation and sin. So James says temptation gives birth to sin. Jesus in the Lord's Prayer says we, we need to be delivered from temptation but forgiven for sin. So again, the two are not equivalent. James 1 also shows me that I'm, I'm tempted when it's my own internal desires that are trying to entice me, so I can't pin my temptation on somebody else. I mean, I do need to acknowledge it, it comes from my own fallen nature. So I, I still want to say that actually, you know, it's possible to experience a form of same-sex temptation, but to be seeking to respond to that temptation in a, in a godly way without sinning. Now, most of us will stumble and fall here and there as we experience temptation. But I don't want someone to think that just the mere capacity for experiencing same-sex attraction is itself already a sin. It is a sign of our fallenness. I wouldn't experience the temptation were it not for the fact that I'm fallen. But if I can stand up to the temptation and flee from temptation, it's possible to experience that without sinning. The question is same-sex attraction is sin. If it's answered in the negative, it can imply that our, our desires are neutral, which they're not. If it's answered in the, in the positive, it can often be very crushing pastorally for people who are actually trying to flee temptation. But it can sound like you're saying, 
the fact that you can be tempted by this is a sin. And it's like saying to someone, please repent of your fallenness. I don't know how to repent of being a fallen person. So that that's why I think we've got to be nuanced in our answering because pastorally there's a lot at stake. And, and not bringing to the issue of same-sex attraction added layers of scrutiny you wouldn't bring to heterosexual temptation. So it's interesting, the only, the only times I ever have these discussions about the relationship between temptation and sin is when, it, when it's concerning same-sex attraction. I don't see the same level of scrutiny about people who wrestle with heterosexual lust. So we, we've got to, again, we've got to apply this across the board. Separating temptation from sin, it really is one of the most important things that we can do. And so often when we have these conversations, we often don't allow ourselves to be consistent between what might be labeled as heterosexual sin and and, and then the, those sins that are LGBT. I, I, I think that overall sexual sins needs to be something that is consistent in our home and in the church. And I think that if we can find a way to be consistent, it's going to bring more validity to God's word, to how we engage as a people, as Christians in the culture, and ultimately the way we practice it. Now, one of the questions we asked Sam was, what would he tell parents if their child came to them and said, hey, mom, hey, dad, I'm struggling with my sexuality. And so we want to hear some practical thoughts from him. I think I would, I mean, it depends on the parent and a lot of other factors as well. But I think I'd want to say to them, this this may not be the headline news you think it is. Because you, you, you were always going to discover your child was a sexual sinner. All you're really discovering is what kind of sexual sinner the, your child happens to be. They were always going to be one kind of sexual sinner. That was never going to be in doubt. So... I'd, I'd want them to not not kind of freak out slash despair slash anything else just because it's same-sex attraction their child is wrestling with rather than heterosexual forms of, of temptation. Every human being is going to wrestle with some form of sexual temptation. The issue isn't primarily what kind of temptation do they experience, but are they someone who loves Jesus more than their sin? And where I've, where I've seen this, I think, go wrong is where... And, I, you know, I'm spending more and more time in the in the South. This may be more of an issue in the South, but I've seen many Christian families where they wouldn't mind if their child was, if their son, say, was sleeping around with a lot of women. They do mind that he's gay, irrespective of whether he's following Jesus or not. So the species of temptation is is becoming more significant in their mind than the son's godliness and his love for Christ. And that, that can't be right. You know, Thomas, you have pastored uh, really across a lot of the U.S. You, you're in Spokane. You're going to be going to Chicago. Uh, you have uh, you grew up in New York City. Uh, I, I'm curious as you hear Sam speak. He he spoke of the South, but I'm I'm actually really curious if it's just an issue in the South or if this is something that we've seen in the Big C Church just across the country. Oh, yeah. Big C Church across the country, across the world, really. How we treat sins, there is a hierarchy system in our minds. What do we do? Let me just ask this then, because Paul uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6 actually dives into and, and, and points to sexual sin. I wouldn't say it's higher. It's different. It, it, sexual sin is different than all other sins. 
what do we do with that? Is if it's not hierarchical, what what do we do with the dynamic of what Paul is talking about in his letter to the Corinth church? Yeah, and I think let me back up for just a quick second. I think what you're saying and what we often do are still slightly different. And here's yeah. what I mean. I think you're right. I think there's something unique with sexual sins of because of how it impacts our body. Yeah. And that's what Paul's getting at. However, what we've done, and I say we because I'm a part of the Big C Church, absolutely, uh, is recognize that we split sexual sins. This is where we get you can be heterosexual sleeping with someone of the opposite sex, and it's bad, but it's better than if you were sleeping with the same sex. That, I think, is problematic. But what you're getting at, Jason, I think you got to wrestle with a little bit is that there is something to sexual sins, how it impacts our body, what does it say about our relationship with Christ, and and how we distort the sexual creatures he's made us to be. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that that's going to be something that we we have to to wrestle with. I, I mean, 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, they're, they're so... I think central to these conversations, I, I think they're incredibly helpful because six is speaking about sexual sin. Seven is diving into marriage. I mean, all yeah. a lot, a lot of our episodes are diving into these issues. And so trying to answer this and, and, and I, let's just say this being willing to be convicted of ways that we have potentially had discussions yep. or thought about these things and to be willing to be challenged by the work of the Holy spirit I think it can be really helpful as a parent. Well, and, and we've said this earlier episodes, it starts with the parents, yeah. right? How we view our sexual past, how we, we interact with that and, and our kids, all of that matters. And I just went back to 1 Corinthians 6 as we're going to wrap this section up and just realize this is why Paul says it's so important. He says in verse 18 of that chapter, because all other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And his justification for that is, don't you know your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God? And so it's it's that reality of like these sins matter so much because this is the temple of God. It's no longer our own body to do whatever we want with it. And this is a very special place we have to be mindful of. Yes. And and so much of this conversation as well, I think it hinges not just on marriage, but also singleness. And, and, and I'm so grateful that Sam spent some time with us discussing singleness out of his books, The Seven Myths About Singleness. As I was doing a lot of ministry, speaking about human sexuality and telling my own story and kind of walking through biblical sexual ethics and all that stuff, I kept getting feedback from people along the lines of, I don't wrestle with same-sex attraction, but you've really helped me think through singleness. And I was thinking, okay, somewhere in the mix here, I'm saying things about singleness that seem to be having real traction with people that seems to be new to them, helpful to them, and began to sort of think through what those particular things were. And I think it, it's it's simply giving people a, a positive biblical vision of, of singleness. Um, people hadn't really been hearing that before and, and the ways I was talking about finding, you know, appropriate, healthy, biblical intimacy whilst being single. Talking about things like friendship and, and all those sorts of things seemed to be kind of quite eye-opening to people. And my, my theory is, if we've got our thinking wrong in any way about singleness, 
it's almost certainly the case we've got our thinking wrong about marriage at the same time, because I don't think one tends to happen without the other. If we have too low a view of singleness compared to what the Bible says, it probably means we have an unrealistically high view of marriage. We're expecting more out of marriage than the Bible would have us expect out of it. So that's sort of why I wrote the book and I hadn't appreciated till the book came out and I started getting feedback that how significant the book has been for many married people, just having a healthier view of marriage as a result. Um, so that, that's been the thing that I've seen is we, we tend to think, well, marriage is the thing that we all need. Singleness is a life of going without essentials of intimacy and romance and that kind of thing. And we, we forget that there are ups and downs of both marriage and singleness. And we tend to compare the ups of marriage with the downs of singleness and not necessarily know that there are downs of marriage and ups of singleness. And passages like 1 Corinthians 7 show us both of those things. Paul talks about, he says at one point, um, those who marry will have worldly trials. And I, I would spare you that. And you kind of think, um, you know, Paul says pretty exalted things about marriage elsewhere in the New Testament. It's not that he's down on marriage, but he's he's like, yep, yeah, you, you're going to get certain, you will add certain types of trial to your life if you get married. So I would spare you that. And then he talks about how, Singleness is a, there, there are ways to actually recognize that singleness can, can be advantageous in the ways that we serve Christ. He talks about being undivided in our devotion to the Lord. So there, there are unique po positives with singleness that, again, I think we've overlooked. So I want to jump in with a, a personal thought here because I love what Sam does, that there are positives to singleness. When I was in Bible college, and Jason, I don't even think you know this, I didn't want to be married. Because I actually had this view that I could do more for the kingdom without a wife and a family. Um, Paul's going to say, if you are going to burn with lust and get married, I, that was my problem, right? So I, had to, <laughs> I found out I could not, I didn't have the gift of singleness and I couldn't, couldn't maintain that faithfulness. But here's why I'm bringing this up. Because when you go to Corinthians, where Sam took us, Paul's actually going to say in verse 27, of, excuse me, verse 25 of chapter 7, I have no command from the Lord, but I give judgment as one who the Lord's mercies is trustworthy. And what he does then is frame for us through wisdom, it sounds like, that if you're not married, you don't have to get married. And those who get married, by the way, you're not in sin, but those who marry will face many troubles in his life, and he wants to spare us from those. And so what I even wrestle with as a pastor uh, and a husband is go, does that mean the Lord would prefer us or rather give us good options? Or is this just the wisdom from Paul? Which, by the way, doesn't mean the Holy Spirit wasn't working in them. It's in the canon, right? We believe it's yep. still all the word of God. But it's just interesting to wrestle with that. When you get God's voice in Scripture, it's marriage. And then when you get godly wisdom, it's singleness. Both, I think, are acceptable. Both, I think, are God-honoring options. I just want to be careful we don't make one more godly than the other. Or even when you get the, you'll be spared from troubles as if marriage itself is then trouble. And I think uh, Sam even goes to say, that's not what he's saying. Paul, that's not what he's saying. But we just need to throw that in the argument. Yeah. Paul goes out his way only twice in scripture to say, this is from me, not the Lord. We still know the spirit worked through him. This is the second time he does it. 
Yeah, yeah, it is, and I, 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 I want parents to hear that. In fact, if you need to stop and uh, spin back 15, 20, 30 seconds to be able to listen to what Pastor Thomas just said, it, it's really good. It's, it's not a lot of the times a part of this conversation, but it's important. And I love the way that you've separated that out. One not being higher than the other, right? And uh, and and Sam being able to 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 dive into that. I, I will say this uh, because I I do think that. Uh, he hits upon something that Sean in a previous episode hit upon, and it's this idea of the singleness, of our singleness or, or of singleness being a foreshadowing of heaven. Yeah, I think of the passage where Jesus says that we, in the age to come we will neither marry nor be given in marriage. I, I think of, I think it's Andreas Kostenberger's book on God and the family. I can't remember the exact title, but it's got God and family in the title, um, where he basically shows that there's a, there's a trajectory to the Bible's teaching on singleness. Um, in in Genesis two, the vision seems to be that that people will be married, and that people in the Old Testament who are are single are that's seen as a negative. Uh, the eunuchs and and the widows being two primary categories of that. Then you get this this turning point in Isaiah 53, after which eunuchs are now being welcomed into the assembly and the barren woman is rejoicing more than the one who's had many kids. So something's gone on there. Jesus then commends eunuchs in Matthew 19. And you get this vision of, of the end whereby actually everyone is going to be single in the age to come. And it's because, you know, Jesus describes himself as the bridegroom. That's the key thing here. Um, and so marriage... One of its functions in the Bible is that it is meant to be a signpost of that ultimate relationship all of us will have in Christ. It points beyond itself. And singleness, therefore, is a way of saying that reality with Jesus is both so real and so good that I can live according to that even now. I can live now as all of us will be in the age to come. Marriage is a, is a good gift for those who, who have it in this in this age, but if I know I'm getting a really good entree, I can skip the appetizer. When I can smell the steak on the grill, I don't need to. I don't need to load up on on chips now. I can think. Actually, I'm going to wait. I'm going to just wait for the steak. And I think there's an element of that with with the biblical view of singleness. It, it's a way of saying, um, if if marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us its sufficiency that Jesus really is enough for us, which isn't to be down on people who get married at all, because both marriage and singleness each have their own ways of kind of being a prophetic anticipation of what we, what we all have in Christ. It's just doing it from two different angles. Shape of the gospel versus sufficiency of the gospel. Wow, that is powerful stuff that Sam gives us. And now he's going to talk about the practicality of being single and the reality faced of loneliness. Yeah, and sometimes, sadly, those myths are realities in some churches, but they shouldn't be. Um, I heard Rebecca McLaughlin recently at a conference say that loneliness is the one form of suffering no Christian should ever have to experience. Because in, in our churches, we're, we're meant to be blended families. So singleness shouldn't be dooming you to a life of loneliness. Um, not if you're a Christian. Because actually, we're meant to be God's household. We're meant to be a family as, as, a, as a local church community. And when that works well, there should be 
rich forms of appropriate biblical intimacy that all of us are created for and all of us need. There should be deep friendships within the church family, whether we're married or single. Um, and actually all of us need them. So the way I often think about it is there's a, there is a depth of intimacy that I don't get to experience by not being married. The depth of intimacy when you're sharing all of your life with one other person. But being single gives me a, a capacity for friendship I wouldn't have if I was married, which means that there is a breadth of intimacy I'm experiencing that my married friends are not. I've, I've got a broader range of friendships that are all very, very close that I wouldn't be able to sustain if I was married. Um, so what I, what I don't get in depth, I think I do get in breadth. It's, it's different. It's not that one is better than the other, but ultimately we're, we're designed to be, to be deeply known and deeply loved. And biblical friendship is, is one of the, the chief ways that's to happen. I've said this on the podcast before, but I did not marry until I was 34 and my wife was 31. Singleness and how I lived into my singleness as a Christian became incredibly important for me to understand in my early 20s. And I learned to be incredibly content with my singleness, which is such a weird thing to say, but it's something that as Christians, we need to be able to learn to understand. Sam's words are life. I really appreciate what he is saying. But I also understand this and remember this as a single person. Community was vital. The church is something that provides community, friendship, opportunity to grow and be with other brothers and sisters who are in belief of the same thing, in pursuit of the same thing. And it's interesting I remember having to be the pursuer as the single friend. That wasn't a bad thing. I understood my married friends had other responsibilities, but I also recognized the beauty with which they provided in the friendship and what I provided in the friendship. And Sam actually does a great job of discussing this. I think it, it often means there's an asymmetry in the friendship. If, if one of you is married and the other one isn't, because... To you as a single person, that friend might be one of, that, that person might be your closest friend. But to them, you are already at least one step further down because their wife is the person that they're closest to. So it can mean that there's an asymmetry in the friendship whereby you might need the friendship slightly more than they do. Um, and whereby, again, I, I found very often it, it tends to be me taking the initiative in the friendship more than the other person does because I tend to need their company sooner than they need my company. Um, one of the things that's happened from this, this book on singleness, again, I didn't anticipate this, is married friends saying it's made them realize how much they need the friendships that they have in life. And I've actually found that it, it's meant that in a, in a number of friendships I've got, the other person has become much more aware of their need to be pursuing me as a friend. And actually, in, in some wonderful cases, their wives have been saying that too and saying, actually, you need, you need more time with, with a couple of your good friends because that'll help you to be a, you know, a, a healthier and more flourishing and that kind of thing. And it's important for spouses not to see your, your spouse's friends as, as a sort of threat to your marriage, but actually as a, a way of strengthening it. We're, just, we're not designed to have 
all of our emotional and relational needs being met by one single human being in marriage. Um, we, we all need friendships. Um, and I hope one of the things I, I regularly pray for is that the fruit of my friendship with my married friends would be that I somehow encourage and help them to be better husbands. So if, if we're doing this right, <laughs> um, those friendships should, should help their marriages just as those friendships help my singleness. As we close out this episode, pay close attention to Sam and his thoughts about communicating the validity and beauty of singleness to our children. One of the dangers is we, we talk about marriage to kids in the category of when and not necessarily in the category of if. So when you get married, dot, 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 which can then build the expectation that you are supposed to get married. And then if for any reason you you can't or don't or you feel led to forms of service that, that are going to require singleness or lead to singleness, um, you can feel as though you're letting your parents down. So we, we, we don't want to put kids in a situation where faithful living in singleness is seen as letting down your Christian parents. Christian parents should see faithful living for Jesus, single or married, as a win. The real issue should be not their marital status, but their their spiritual status. Um, are they, not do they have a ring on their finger, but do they know and love the Lord? Are they going to be part of that eternal marriage? That's the real issue. And again, I've, I've seen too many Christian parents, they've put their dreams for their children's future above what the Bible says would be biblical wisdom on, on how their kids should live. So I, I don't want Christian kids growing up thinking they're letting down their parents if they end up actually leading lives of faithful singleness. So I'd encourage parents to, just as when we come to faith, we have to take our ambitions for our own lives and, and put them at the, feet, at the feet of the Lord and ask him to do what he wants with them. We need to do that with our ambitions for our kids as well. You may You may have been dreaming of your child's wedding for... However long you may have been dreaming of what your grandkids are going to look like. But those are things to offer to the Lord. They may not be part of God's best plan for your kid. And if your child is is single, not necessarily through choice, it may be because they experience same-sex attraction and, and just marriage is going to be unrealistic. It might be because they are serving Lord on the mission field in a way that means they're not likely to get married. Or it may just be they can't find someone. You don't want to compound the challenges and difficulties of that by then adding a layer of, of guilt that they shouldn't have to experience. So I would hope Christian parents would help their children to see both marriage and singleness are gifts of God. Both of them are ways of, of honoring Christ and, and living in a way that points to the gospel. And for parents to help their kids grow up seeing good examples of both. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Sex Plus Christian Parents. I'm Thomas. I'm Jason. And thanks for being with us on this episode. We'll see you again soon.